0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner. Today we'll be talking to Sam Spinner, author of Jewish Primitivism. Dr. Spinner is assistant professor in the Modern Languages and Literatures Department at Johns Hopkins University, where he holds the Zelda and Meyer Tendetnik Professorship in Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture. Dr. Spinner earned his PhD at Columbia University and was a visiting assistant professor in the German department at UCLA before moving to Johns Hopkins in 2014. Welcome, Sam.
1: Hi. uh, Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here talking with you about my book.
0: It's really a pleasure to have you, and it's just been so interesting and uh, enjoyable to kind of really wrestle with this book over the last few weeks um, in preparation for this. So why don't we get started I'd like to just give you a chance to tell us something about yourself about your background and to share any biographical details that uh, that you'd like to share.
1: Sure. well, um you know i could I could launch into the the full memoirs or autobiography, but um maybe i'll I'll try to connect it a little bit to um to the book, um, which, like I guess many scholars' first books uh, has some relation to the the dissertation um, And, uh, you know, I I got my Ph.D. in German at Columbia, um, but I'm now a a Yiddish professor, my official position. Um, But I always did as a graduate student, I still do work on German and Yiddish literature together. And that's always been kind of uh, an interest of mine in part, maybe even in large part for biographical reasons. My father was born in Czernovitz and was a native German and Yiddish speaker. And so for me personally, those two languages, which for many others, uh, including in the academy in the post-war decades, seemed like very separate things, for me personally they they never were separate things. And I brought that over into my studies. I always knew I wanted to work on German and yiddish and and of course, studying twentieth century literature, I started looking at um, texts across that language divide, and I found a lot of commonalities that surprised me, including in the way that Jewish writers in both German and Yiddish treated notions of authenticity. Um, and uh, but but and and I ended up writing my dissertation on uh anthropology, essentially, in um in the creation of modern German and Yiddish literature. And I realized um as you know, after I finished my dissertation and let it sit and, and moved away from it and started thinking about what, what kind of what was I really trying to get at. I realized that I had gotten it kind of wrong. Um, and that it wasn't actually about anthropology as a, an, an intellectual or scientific discipline, but it was actually about aesthetics. It was about art. Um, because I was looking at literature. And at the end of the day, or maybe actually at the beginning of the day, writers are writers, right? Before they're intellectual historians or before they're philosophers. And I found that. um, that what was motivating uh, all of the figures that I was interested in, that I was talking about, um, that what motivated them initially, if not exclusively, were aesthetic questions. Um, and that helped me reframe my approach to the, the field and also open myself up to, to other examples of writers and artists who ended up playing a role um, in this work. And so I treat German and Yiddish literature together. And like I said, you know, I, I may have secret secret personal reasons for doing that, but i I like to think that I'm on on solid um, scholarly grounds in having done so. That's
0: really interesting, and that's one of the things that strikes me so much about the book, the way you range kind of not only across different media but also across different language literatures because you, you just talked about Yiddish and German, but you also go pretty deeply into Hebrew literature and Hebrew sources. And I, want, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about my sense is that's fairly unique in scholarship uh, of this period and of this world um, that for once one historian or, or, or one literary scholar to work in all three languages, to go back and forth and to trace subjects who themselves worked in multiple languages. So I wondered if you could kind of reflect
1: on that a little bit in that process. Sure. I mean, I'm I'm far from the only scholar who, who, who does and can work in those languages, of course. And in recent years, let's say the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years, there's really been a lot more uh, wonderful scholarship doing that kind of multilingual work across those languages, reframing and repositioning the scholarly approach to European Jewish literatures. Having said that, there still are long histories, both pre-Holocaust and post-Holocaust, in the formation of these languages as modern cultural languages. And then, and this is primarily post-Holocaust, in the creation of these languages as objects of scholarly study um, that, that separates them and that sees them separate. So those are sort of pre-war language ideologies, and those are post-war academic ideologies sort of conspiring to to keep these languages separately. and you know you can envision it in a certain way in um, geographically um, plotted on to national borders. But of course the languages as languages of literature in the first half of the 20th century, these particular languages especially did not map onto the borders of any nation state. German um, was, was spoken and written and used across the entire territory of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and beyond, um, Yiddish as well, and Hebrew, of course, uh, in, the, in the period in which it was um, revived, I suppose you could say, or created as the language of a, of a modern, or rather as, as a modern cultural uh, and intellectual language, as a modern language, um, was not pegged any nation state because there was no nation state, um, and it was a language that that was involved in a project that was centered in Europe, um, and so we find if we approach these these language literatures, which as I said for very good and you know reasons um, have been treated often quite separately, um, we find that actually there's quite a lot of overlap, and you know the example in my book where I talk about Hebrew just in relation to one author, the uh, the Israeli didn't start out Israeli, of course, but but uh, ended his life as an Israeli, uh, the Hebrew poet Uritzvi Greenberg, who was born in Galicia, um, who moved like many other young Eastern European writers and artists to Berlin, uh, where he sort of comes into the picture in my book, because it's in Berlin, that he meets Elza Lasker Schuler, the great German Jewish poet, Um, And it's also in Berlin that he makes the decision to switch from being a Yiddish poet, which he had been, to being a Hebrew poet, which is a decision that also maps onto his sort of uh, geographical and life decision to move to Palestine Um, and his adoption of Zionism and very rapidly the the farthest, most radical right wing sort of uh, end of the spectrum of Zionism. And, and he stayed there, and, and um, you know, he had a, a very interesting life back and forth, back to Poland, um, made it back to Palestine right before the Second World War, and, and he died in Israel. Um, he did switch to Hebrew, and he became known um, as one of the greatest Hebrew language poets, you know, ever, but certainly of, of the 20th century. Um, And in the sort of scholarly depiction of, of Greenberg that, you know, the, the, that hinge, that pivot that he made in Berlin in 1922, 23, from Yiddish to Hebrew is seen as significant, which of course it is. Um, And is often understood to be pretty much complete, but it wasn't, he kept writing Yiddish poetry. And it's actually that sort of period in which his Yiddish poetry continues to infiltrate into this phase of his career that's supposed to be just Hebrew that is the the period that that and that are the poems also that that I'm looking at because those are also the poems where he's taking this trope of of Jewish primitivism from Elsa Lasker-Schüler and converting it into something very different so there's not only the crossing of languages from german to yiddish to hebrew but and this is one of the reasons why I really enjoyed researching and writing this chapter on Lasker-Schüler and on Greenberg but there's also an amazing political transformation. Lasker Schuler's vision of Jewish primitivity as a kind of Bohemian utopia centered on the authorial subject and on the independence, the, the sort of fantasy of um, freedom and independence of the artist is converted by Greenberg into uh, an explicitly concrete political vision of the settlement. Of the land of Israel and the creation of a nation state, um, so you know there are these aesthetic transformations, these language transformations, these political transformations.
0: That's that chapter is one of my favorites because it's the, the 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 two individuals are both so vivid and so complex, and their relationship is kind of baffling, even as you go through and kind of clarify. Uh, exactly how it was possible and and then when it stopped being possible. But I think that um, really opens up a discussion I want to get into in a minute about kind of the politics of Jewish primitivism and the various, the quite starkly different political programs that can come out of this sort of primitivist discourse. But maybe before we get there and before we kind of come back to the language question, I want to just ask you maybe a more basic question about this concept of Jewish primitivism. And I, um, one, one question I have about it is I'm absolutely convinced that you're onto something here and I'm not disputing that at all, but I'm wondering if the, the term itself is a term that you invented for this project, or if you saw it used in, in some of the sources and the, I think in a way what's so exciting about the project is the different, very different kinds of voices you stitch together here, um, people who are operating in different media with different sensibilities, but that you find this, with, I think, what you just called a trope, or a trope, or a, um, a a a kind of discourse, you could say about Jewish primitivism that goes through all of them. So, just tell us, please, a little bit about you know the term and the concept and your engagement with it and kind of the history of thinking about it that way.
1: Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, just to clarify. What it is, uh, although of course, clarifying what it is took me a whole book and 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 maybe I didn't even <laughs> quite get there. So let me just say to to give a sentence or two about about what it is. Primitivism in general, without the Jewish part, is the idea that um, not only, you know that that a prior point in history was better, but that the ultimate prior point in history, the point before history, prehistory, when humanity was quote unquote, primitive. Was that better time? Um, and this idea is, you know, uh, is is present throughout at least Western culture from classical antiquity to the present. Um, but it gets really activated in a profound um, way, in a in a condensed way, with the development and the sharpening of notions of civilization, and ultimately with the relation of those notions of civilization and culture to anthropological and racial ideas. And that happens, of course, in the 19th century um, with the the sort of um, conjuncture of the rise of anthropology as a science and as a discipline and the the creation of European empires. Um, and um, and and what had happened was that that the sort of amorphous notions of things being better when humanity had not been corrupted by whatever it was that was corrupting humanity now, whatever features of contemporary culture. Those amorphous notions uh, became concretized or theorists, uh, scientists, and so on tried to concretize them by pegging them onto quote-unquote primitive peoples. Those were the usually dark-skinned peoples uh, whom European uh, empires were colonizing and dominating. Uh, They were then pointed at and said, these are the primitive people. and These are the example of, of what it is that that we can use, um, how would they be used? And this is what really distinguishes primitivism in modernity and specifically in the literary and artistic context in in modernism. They would be used as a critique of European art and culture. And they would also be used as a sort of source of inspiration. So whatever it is that you want to do different, you can decide what that is on the basis of comparison to, again, and I'm going to stop saying quote unquote, but that should always be implied, (laughs) quote-unquote, primitive people and primitive culture. Um, and then you can begin to develop those ideas. And that first really took off in the context of the visual arts. Um, most famously, Paul Gauguin, the French painter who went to Tahiti in search, um, in search of inspiration, in search of contact with a vital form of art that he felt was impossible to find in the West. Um, but of course, you know, looking at his correspondence in his biography, we also found that he was running away from his wife and children. <laughs> so that, you know, so so primitivism as a sort of discourse, as a fantasy, is also always um, interlaced with personal and imperial histories of um, of violence, of appropriation, of domination. Um, Paul Gauguin. Pablo Picasso, a couple of decades later, perhaps most crucially for the development of modernism, um, explicitly identified a sort of catalytic moment for him in the creation of abstraction as his contact with, in a Parisian ethnographic museum, with African art. So primitive in the modern period becomes associated with people who were almost always colonial subjects. And their culture, various aspects of it, gets appropriated as a sort of source for inspiration for the creation of new Western art. That's what primitivism is usually. Jewish primitivism does many of those same things in terms of the dynamics, looking for an originary source as a form of critique of Western modernity, looking for it as an inspiration for the creation of some new um, some new aesthetic uh, trajectory. But instead of identifying the object as uh, people or culture or a society far away, uh, you know, sort of the uh, consisting of the uh, stereotypical other, Jewish primitivism identifies those others as European Jews. Often, but not always, Hasidic Jews or sort of stereotypically pious Eastern European Jews. Often, but not always. And this happens across uh, German Jewish society into the various Eastern European Jewish societies. So it's not strictly as, you know, sort of in the canonical uh, understanding, um, including from, from Stephen Asheim's great book, Brothers and Strangers, where he talks about this uh, from a social and cultural historical perspective. The uh, obsession in Germany among German Jews with Eastern European Jews, that's part of it but it extends into Eastern European Jews doing the same thing to themselves. So that's Jewish primitivism. So to answer your question of, is this something I I invented to sort of bring together a group of texts uh, or or discourses, or is it something reflected in the sources? A little bit of both. Um, Nobody in the broader history of primitivism or in Jewish primitivism is, is really calling things primitivism until a couple of decades later um the The sort of first art historical uh, uh retrospective treatment of primitivism is in robert goldwater's um, book from I think nineteen twenty eight um, but that's also quite early because there's still modernist primitivism in a way happening when when he's writing that um but that's not to say that there wasn't theorization that really corresponds quite closely to what later was sort of pegged as primitivism but they don't quite use that term but the term primitive does come up quite a lot um and in the yiddish context one of the words that was used or one you know encounters most frequently to describe the aesthetic object of this interest of this obsession fantasy desire is the folks primitive which i talk a little bit about in my book because it it actually um complicates the understanding of how primitivism works and how primitivism constructs its object that we get from the typical European narrative. Um, And what I, what I mean to say is by bringing together those words folk and primitive, because the folk, especially in the German context uh, refers to the European people, the the people that constitute um, the the residents, the citizens of what would be the nation state. Um, the people who speak the language live on the soil and carry the blood of the German folk, let's say. Um, and that's, of course, how f- folkish uh, ideology developed. Um, and that's a core concept that, that in fact gets played out in the development of German anthropology as a discipline, where you have Volkskunde, Right. Which is, you know, usually in English, you would say something like Folklore Studies, which is essentially ethnology or ethnography about European culture, as opposed to Folkarkunde, which is ethnography, specifically, you know, Beziehungsweise ethnography of, of people far away. Of the other. Right? Of the other. Uh, and you have that preserved, you know, down to the present day in the sort of um, institutional formation of German anthropology. And that has roots going back to, I guess, the 18th, certainly the 19th century, in terms of how these notions were developed, folk versus folker. And primitiveness was usually identified with the other, with folker, rather than folk. That's not to say that folk art was not interesting or folklore was not interesting. Of course, it was profoundly interesting, but in a different way. And so while you do have artists who were doing things similar to primitivism with indigenous, right, indigenous European, it even sounds strange using that term, Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, in a way, indigenizing European culture, it's not typical, and there's usually some move of distancing that happens. And so, for example, um, you would have a a sort of folk primitivism in the European non-Jewish context identified with medievalism. Right, so you move things back a thousand years in order to to legitimize the primitiveness of it. Primitivism with the 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 object, uh, you know, the colonial subject as its object um, has no problem laying on the living present subject with a sort of primitive prehistoric identity. Um, and, you know, that's something that that Johannes Fabian, uh, among other theorists. Famously um, described anthropology's way of, of creating a sort of permanent, contemporaneous ahistoricism or prehistoricism. We are alive in the moment with time passing by. They are frozen in an eternal past-present. Um, anyway, so so in the Jewish context, you have a, an interesting conflation, the folks primitive. Because Jewish culture in that very period, late 19th, early 20th century was um, was sort of desperately trying to lay claim to Europeanness to to a, a legitimate claim to to be there, not to geography um, but to to civil rights um, to cultural justification and this took of course many many different forms, but you wouldn't think that it would also produce um, a sort of aesthetic counterpoint that critiqued the very basis of those claims. So the modern Jewish cultural project, which was which was sort of substantiating culturally, linguistically, and so on, the Europeanness of Jews uh, and the modernity of Jews, that very project is also what enabled the development of Jewish primitivism. Which, in identifying the Jewish European folk subject as also a primitive subject, was sort of breaking the whole thing apart.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating to me, and and I, I guess the one of the distinctive qualities of Jewish primitivism, as opposed to this kind of general European primitive, primitivism, is the relationship between the subject and object. Is yeah. right there this distancing the. One is looking at oneself in a sense, right? Or one is looking at the communities out of which one's ancestors came, which turns it into a very different kind of project.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, in in the way I argue it, that's one of the essential components. That's one of the things that that gives, that activates the, the sort of complicated and interesting aesthetic and political aspects of Jewish primitivism which is that there's this push-pull dynamic that's constantly there, and, um, and the, the ability to suppress it or to work with it forces its way to the forefront uh, at every turn.
0: The, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the – because you've brought up this broader context of the German-speaking Jews' kind of fascination with Eastern European Jewry – and uh, refer to Ashheim's book, um, which I think gets at some of the ambivalence in that fascination. Um, I wonder if you could kind of draw a distinction between the primitivist discourses you're engaging with here and nostalgia or sort of the um, more of the, I mean, kind of fiddler on the roof moat which I think in some ways comes up in your treatment of uh, Josef Roth, but I think we, could, we can kind of see strains of um, in different places as well. And um, how, how is nostalgia kind of in tension with uh, this concept of primitivism?
1: I think that there's um, there's a continuum. And that, that's not to say that there's nostalgia at one end and primitivism at the other, because I think there are also moments where they're they're both happening at the same time um and and that's something i i want to sort of mention now and and apply to any of my remarks which is that primitivism is never and jewish primitivism is never uh a, you know a particular set or a number of bullet points uh something that's rigidly definable it's a project it's something that is constantly in negotiation by the figures the writers and artists doing it so it's not a sort of set of um of criteria that can be met and then you have a primitivist thing. It's rather that, that direction, that that drive to critique and to create anew. Um, and what, what unifies it and what makes it primitivism as opposed to any of the other sort of efforts to critique that we find in European modernity is that, and maybe this is the one criterion, is that it, it locates a, the object, the source of that critique in the primitive, and so then, of course, it, it becomes important to define what is the primitive. And I guess this circles back to your question, which is that um, very often, that especially when the the primitive uh, is located within one's own culture, that desire could very well be nostalgia. I think what distinguishes nostalgia, you know, if we leave it with a, a sort of amorphous definition. Um, rather than getting too specific about it, what distinguishes nostalgia from primitivism is that primitivism is always associated or usually associated. Um, and again, you know, the, the weight of these emphases changes from figure to figure and from chapter to chapter in my book. But primitivism is associated with critique, critique of the present day of culture of society and with the effort to create a new, whereas nostalgia is not necessarily associated with those things. Nostalgic literature is not driving at, you know, you know, avant-garde literature um, and avant-garde art has primitivism all over the place. Um, Much of what's recognizable as primitivist art is associated with the avant-garde. But nostalgia, not so. You can have nostalgic literature, of course, that's intensely retrograde and conservative. In many respects, that's that's par for the course. That's what nostalgia is for.
0: Um, yeah, that's what, as you were talking, that's what really kind of um, presented itself to me as a way of thinking about it. That nostalgia has this very conservative kind of undertone to it, whereas, as you've shown throughout this book, primitivism is 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 put avant-garde in that it's always kind of questioning the terms of its own production, and it's right, it's really about. A challenge to modes of kind of normal, regular modes of representation, whereas nostalgia seems to only kind of accept them and and kind of milk them in
1: a way for uh, for the the emotional response. Absolutely, and so you know, nostalgic literature taking European Jews and traditional Jews as its object was profoundly successful, especially in, in German literature of the nineteenth century. The so-called um you know ghetto geschichten and uh, novellen the Dorfgeschichten, with you know corresponding to a popular german um genre the sort of melodramas that jonathan has wrote about absolutely um you know th- those were immensely popular people enjoyed reading them people felt very positive about them because they they simply um in their nostalgia they were sort of um consoling um and and in a sense, also reified the, the power relationships that the, the readership um, were enmeshed in, the, the process of um, creation and stabilization of the citizen subject, the transfer of populations from the country to the city, and so on. Uh, whereas primitivism usually did not make people feel good in that way or stable in that way, and the relationship also to their aesthetic forms had that same, um, as you said, destabilization, right? They, they weren't about simply um, offering up the same thing that had been successful, but were constantly trying to question the basis of their own creation. Uh, is this a legitimate way to create art? You know, whatever I, writer or artist, had been doing. Um, and the answer was usually no, because it differs from what I imagine to have been primitive art. So, and I, so yeah, sorry. Go
0: well, I guess that's also very tied up with questions of reception and audience, right? Because it's, it seems like the nostalgic vein isn't challenging; it doesn't challenge the spectator in a way. It's just kind of comforting or pleasing, or uh, it goes down easy in a way. Uh, whereas this, the, the works you talk about are really complex and, and challenging, difficult to understand, and un- often unpleasant in a way to engage with right
1: that's true um and ultimately i think like like much avant-garde art and literature there wasn't the same kind of audience that you would have found with that that you know nostalgic 19th century literature that, that we were just talking about um and so in terms of the the influence um of this kind of jewish primitivism you know I don't I don't talk about that so much in in my book. my My focus is on the works themselves to try to understand how these texts and these images do primitivism. That's not to say that the question of how they were received is uninteresting. Um, and I think that that question would have to be answered uh, in a much broader field, intersecting or situating that response, uh, that reception of aesthetic primitivism in the reception um more broadly. Of anthropology in popular culture, um, and and of course the, the sort of broader trajectory of of Jewish culture and its reception um, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, and of course there's a lot of recent work, especially among German historians, uh, in terms of the reception of colonialism and anthropology um, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, and I think that that would be an important sort of um, model for the kind of work that would need to be done to understand the reception of Jewish primitivism among Jewish readers. Having said that, I, I think you know we could say that in a way a Jewish readership was primed to at least be open to, if not understanding of avant-garde Jewish primitivism by um, you know the phenomenon that, that Ashheim describes in his book, Brothers and Strangers, by what Gershom Scholem famously called the cult of the Ostjuden, right? It created a discursive space so that in the German Jewish press of the early 20th century, there was constant discussion of, you know what is, what is authentic Jewish art uh, translate a market for translations of Hasidic literature and of, of current Yiddish literature. So there was a a priming for it, um, even if that would have the sort of critical stance of primitivism as such would have been a shock to that audience. Um, But I think there was a certain um, saturation of the discursive field, if you will, with elements of um, anthropological discourse and exoticization that um, perhaps made Jewish primitivism somewhat Um, even more salient uh, and more more aggressively critical in the context of Jewish art and culture than it was more broadly.
0: Interesting. I I definitely want to get back to this kind of anthropological context and the colonial connections because I think that could be a really fruitful um, area of inquiry. Um, Mm -hmm. But before we do, I think it, it would be useful to get a little bit more specific here with the book. And because we've been kind of right, talking around it a lot and, and you have such rich examples and so many intriguing characters. And um, my sense, since you begin the book really with Kafka and have a, a chapter with, on Kafka, my sense is that Kafka is one of the key, I mean, clearly one of the key figures here and one of the most important Jewish primitivists. Um, is there, let me ask you a question that might not be fair, but you know, is, <laughs> is there, do you have a favorite chapter or favorite character and is there um is is there kind of um is kafka really the the i guess what i'm trying to ask is is kafka really the the, the key to unlocking this whole concept and i think specifically because kafka both by comparing classic jews to africans in this you know very very um kind of rich and fraught uh, anecdote that you begin with and then come back to in the middle of the book Um, and by his own kind of alienation from himself and the way he thematizes that in his work, um, I'm wondering, you know, is, is Kafka, how does Kafka, let me put it this way. How does Kafka fit into the larger project? And if there's another, and this is a kind of invitation to go deeper into Kafka, or if not, then somebody else who you want to bring into the discussion.
1: Sure. Um, who is my favorite well if if I'm going to be brave enough to answer that question let me let me preface my answer by saying that favorite <laughs> will not indicate uh, any kind of approval. I don't think primitivism is good uh, if that needs to be said, I've said it. Um, I don't think primitivism is good. I think that um that the the sort of presence uh, and centrality of of racist and racialist um, discourses within primitivism is um unavoidable. And that's the case also for Jewish primitivism. And I think that the certain um, cultural and political dynamics that it engenders are are not good. Um, so, so I guess, you know, the, the, the answer would be, you know, what did I most enjoy learning about or writing about um, Kafka certainly, but, but approaching Kafka is, is a fraught endeavor. Um, especially, you know, I started working on him in this respect, um, still in my dissertation right and so it, it takes a certain amount of bravery but also recklessness to uh, to to move in into kafka territory because uh because of the huge amount of criticism uh, uh amazing wonderful scholarship on kafka what what new thing could one possibly say um, and kafka was also familiar to me in a way and so the development of my reading on kafka um didn't surprise me perhaps as much as it, it may surprise some of my readers. Um, so I will talk about about Kafka in a minute because you're right, he absolutely is central. But I think my favorite, um, my favorite, well, it's hard. I like them all, but, but, um, and, and I feel, I feel, you know, sort of happy that I'm able to say that. I, I don't know how, um, how my readers, and I hope I find many readers, I don't know how they're going to respond, but but I at least still like my book. Um, and there are nice pictures, pictures throughout it. So one of the chapters that I that I really enjoyed writing because it was so unexpected for me, it was um something that I I essentially discovered as I was doing reading and working, developing uh, the ideas um that, that would coalesce in the book is the chapter on Lasker Schuler and on Greenberg. Um, I really had no idea. I knew that lasker Schuler had a lot of Orientalism and things that that were really quite close to, and as I now ended up arguing, were primitivist. but I had no idea that she had this um, this poetic relationship with Uritzvi Greenberg, which was quite concrete. She has this amazing um, trope throughout her work, in her letters, in her visual art, and in her fiction. Of the Bund der Wilden Juden, the Society of Savage Jews, uh, which she imagined herself to be the chief of herself in one of her sort of personas as Prince Yusuf, a kind of Orientalist um, fantasy figure, um, who in in one uh, drawing that that is reproduced in my book that she made of the Society of Savage Jews, it shows. Herself as Prince Yusuf, uh, dancing in a circle, arms around each other, uh, with her comrades who are warriors and artists. And Prince Yusuf is depicted with a sword in his belt, and written on the scabbard of the sword is the Hebrew word, ve'ahavta, and thou shalt love, which of course is from, from the Bible, uh, you know, the, and, and either thou shalt love the Lord God. Um, or and thou shalt love thy neighbor as, neighbor as thyself.
0: Also familiar from from the Shema for so many.
1: Right, um, but it's written on the scabbard of the sword. Right, so love. Right, but but love is kind of a dangerous thing there. But this is you know very much a sort of playful, at times aggressive, at times fantastical um, uh, uh, trope that she's developed. That, as I said, uh, ranges across the entire body of her work. And she really was a quintessential avant-garde artist in not distinguishing between the various spheres of her life and her artistic practice. Her letters were venues uh, for her artistic expression as much as her her um, published fiction was. And in fact, some of her greatest works are published versions of correspondence um, that, that she had. Um, so art letters, um, and also in in letters that are not published that remained in the archives. Fiction, the Bund der Wilden Juden, Society of Savage Jews. Ritzvi Greenberg, this young poet who appears in Berlin in the early 20s, a Yiddish poet, having moved away from his his Orthodox uh, home. His father apparently was a very minor Hasidic Rebbe. Um, this was something that Lasker Schuler loved, and she sort of over the course of the remainder of her life um whenever she bumped into greenberg or had cause to write to him she would she would mention it she would say i'm 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 dreaming of your father um the holy you know wunder Rabbiner, um a uh, miracle rabbi so she was completely taken with him she was one of the only figures of um prominence in the german jewish cultural scene to not only be open to but to seek out contact with this large uh, and young group of Almost exclusively male writers and artists who had flocked to Berlin in the early 1920s. They all hung out at the Romanisches Cafe in West Berlin, and um, and 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 she would you know sit with them and, and talk with them, and she befriended Greenberg. And Greenberg took uh, this trope, the Bund der Wilden Juden, and he converted it uh, a few years later, or really translated it into Hebrew, Brit Yehudim Hapraim, a literal translation, Society of Savage Jews. Um and beginning in an essay that he wrote and published in a in a Hebrew newspaper in the in the late twenties, I guess in honor of what might have been nobody was quite sure about Lasker Schuler's age but but in honor of her her fiftieth birthday um beginning in in that essay and then continuing through a sequence of of poems. He uses this trope explicitly and he develops his primitivism in some other poems that I bring in that were published in Yiddish um, in revisionist newspapers in in Poland in the thirties about Shabtai Tzvi, the great uh, messianic pretender um, who who shook the Jewish world. Um, And Greenberg associates the, you know, he he sort of creates a, a primitivism out of that utopian, bohemian, um, art, artistic paradise that Lasker Schuler imagines with the antinomian, mystical utopianism, messi- messianism of Shabtai Tzvi. He sort of mashes these two things together and filters them through the settlement of Palestine. And so the discovery of that, of those Greenberg poems, and of that whole complex in Greenberg was really exciting to me. And connecting it to Lasker Schuler,
0: yeah, it's I, I really enjoyed that chapter too. I'm, I mean, I admit I, I kind of st- struggle with Lasker Schuler because she, the relentless avant-garde quality of her life and work, and as you said, that there's no separation between the kind of individual persona and the artistic production and. For a historian like me, that gets exhausting after a while. But I think this very unlikely, I don't know if I, you would, would you call it a friendship or a collaboration or a, an association between these two? Um, and I guess he, in, in some ways, she was a, a bit of a mentor to him, even though he then goes off in a very different direction in this later work.
1: Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it- it's a complicated relationship and I don't know that I would call it friendship. Certainly when they were in Berlin, they were friends and she was a mentor to him. Uh, and they, and he talks in this essay that he published in the twenties about their relationship in Berlin, spending a lot of time together, talking together, living that Bohemian life. Um, but, uh, but later he takes a political turn that's unacceptable for her, uh, even though she ended up in Palestine and, and died there. Um you know, she wasn't uh, she wasn't a Zionist per se, um, but of course, she was clear sighted enough to to leave Germany. She was arrested by the Gestapo and beaten up, and she left immediately, uh, and I think went to Switzerland, and then went to Palestine, um, which meant that that she was not killed in the Holocaust. Um, so she was certainly not hostile towards the the land of Israel or the Jewish connection to the land of Israel. Um, but Greenberg was a far radical right-wing Zionist who, at times, was even too much for the revisionists. Um, yes, and and Lasker Schuller was not. And so, it's, so they they have this relationship in Berlin. But but later on, even though, she, especially she maintained the relationship there. She also expressed uh, an ambivalence that that shaded into something more. She writes in in her letters and in various. Um, sketches for what would become a, a very interesting travelogue about, about Palestine, Israel, um, called, uh, das land, the land of the Hebrews. Um, she writes as if she's, she's scared of him. Um, she writes about a, a time still in Berlin when he came to the cafe and she thought that he was going to kill her. Um, but he, she also identifies him. He, he had red hair and she always calls him, you know, the redhead. Um, she identifies him then with, uh, in her terms, a red Indian. So there's a certain kind of primitiveness that she associates with his with his political brutality um, that activates a certain fear in him. So, but but she she keeps writing to him periodically over the course of her life. Uh, I think she sought him out once or twice when they were then both in Palestine, um, but they didn't see each other frequently. So it wasn't ambivalent relationship that consisted of fascination on both sides. I think Greenberg's fascination for Lasker Schuller as epitomizing a diasporic Jewish culturalness, the quintessential Jewish poet of the diaspora in this essay uh, that he published was called Dvorah B'Shivya, Deborah in Captivity. He associates her with the poetess, the biblical poetess, right? There's this kind of floridness to the essay, uh, Deborah. And she was fascinated with him um, by virtue of his politics, his aggressiveness, but also his origins as an Eastern European Yiddish-speaking Jew whose father was a rabbi. She she loved that. She couldn't get get away from that. And so there's this um, this ambiguity in their relationship, and also this um, sort of political binary. You know, she was a, a left wing revolutionary, and he was a radical right winger. In fact, at some points in the 1920s, he was a self-identified, as we say nowadays, a self-identified fascist. Um, yeah, that's,
0: that's uh, very challenging to think of, uh, a self-identified Jewish fascist in this period. So would you say that, um, I mean, in some ways, it seems that Lesker Schuler is seeing Greenberg, Greenberg as the embodiment of this savage or wild Jew, which is a figure she celebrates, but a figure she also is afraid of. And that that's somehow the kind of, um, that ambivalence, it plays itself out in in terms of their association.
1: Yes. I think that, that that's, that's exactly it. There's a, a fascination and a fear, um, and that she, you know, isn't sort of toggling between the two, but, but they're essentially interwoven, um, with each other and the sort of violence and danger implicit in primitivism, um, which sort of, it can, it can seem sometimes like she treats it as a joke, for example, in that, that image of Prince Yusuf with the word, and thou shalt love on his scabbard, um, that the, the potential for that not to be a joke, uh, is revealed to her in her understanding of Greenberg's trajectory and his politics she doesn't renounce him, uh, even though she certainly expresses her her fear of him and her distaste for um, for the aggression that he embodied um and and then on his side, I think that he turns her into a figure uh, without ambivalence um, and and he sort of um, you know stereotypes and exoticizes her as this you know, quintessentially beautiful expression of Jewish diaspora. This was great, but this was the peak um, and to reach a fruition. And he ends the essay about her imagining um, the Brita Yehudim Apraim, the the now Hebrew Society of Savage Jews, sending a group to go rescue her from the diaspora and bring her to the land of Israel where she could finally flourish and be free. She did you know, historically end up in, in Palestine. She never learned Hebrew, though.
0: I was going to say, it's my sense is that she remained in a very German-speaking, cultural German in terms of language, but also German cultural world. And I, I know that she continue, kind of really trafficked in the, in the German-Jewish scene in, in Jerusalem, and it sounds like Greenberg went in a very different direction there.
1: Yes. Um, you know, he, he knew Hebrew, um, and that's you know in, in part in large part because he he grew up in a in an Orthodox ultra religious uh, environment where he he learned Hebrew uh, in order to study Jewish religious texts and then he embraced Hebrew as a literary language and as a spoken language um, and Zionism and and the, the the sort of cultural and political scene of Zionism in Palestine were his scene. Lasker Schuler uh, was politically ambivalent uh, in that regard, but also was limited by her language. She didn't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. She didn't know Hebrew and um, she had never learned it. She grew up in a German Jewish uh, family that, you know, had some uh, level of, of Jewish observance, a relatively low level as she described it. You know, a few holidays here and there. She maybe had learned a few blessings and a few prayers, but had retained almost no memory of it and and didn't know Hebrew. Um, there's a postcard of hers preserved in Greenberg's archives in Israel, in the National Library, um, that she sent her, where she writes the word shalom in Hebrew letters, but she she leaves out um, one of the letters. Um, and you can see it's a kind of shaky, forced hand. Um, and it's, you know, this, this disarming expression of a certain kind of desire um, to identify with that form of Jewishness, um, but the limit to it, the limit of linguistic reality. Um, She couldn't, maybe she didn't have the opportunity or the wherewithal, but she never did learn Hebrew. Uh, And so that, at least in part, was also the reason why she remained in this German-Jewish cultural and intellectual sphere in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So why don't we turn to Kafka now? Right. So, you know, so uh, we've been talking a little bit about ambivalence, political, cultural ambivalence in, in Oscar Schuler and in Greenberg. Ambivalence is, I think, the great characteristic of Kafka's relation to Jewish identity, but also to Jewish primitivism. Um, you know, there are a couple of of really pithy quotations that I have in my book uh, from Kafka that give a strong sense of this. One of them I, I start the book with Um but I'm going to read um, I'm going to read three quotations here now, and I'll read that one that I start the book with last. Um, so there's one famous quotation from a nineteen twelve speech that Kafka gave about Yiddish, uh, where he he had organized and put on a, a sort of staged reading of yiddish poetry and and, and prose and drama by a yiddish uh, a, an actor from a Yiddish theater group who was in Prague uh, who had, Kafka had formed a close bond with. Was fascinated by him. Um, and Kafka put on a staged reading and gave a short speech about Yiddish beforehand. And in this speech, he said, quote, once Yiddish has taken hold of you and moved you, and Yiddish is everything, the words, the Hasidic melody, and the essential character of this East European Jewish actor himself, you will have forgotten your former reserve. Then you will come to feel the true unity of Yiddish. Right, so this is um, an idea of Yiddish that actually has nothing to do with a language as a concrete thing that you have to learn and that you can speak, right? Yiddish will have taken hold of you and moved you. Yiddish is everything. What, is, what does that mean? It's not just it's the words, the melody, character. This is a notion of Yiddish, um, a primitivist notion of Yiddish that identifies it with something core, something deep, something beyond um. Western scientistic definitions of language, right? It's not about, and and he talks in the speech a little bit about grammar and and he essentially says, oh, Yiddish, you know, doesn't really have grammar, Um, which is of course not true. Every language has, has grammar, Yiddish, Yiddish included. Um, So he says that in 1912 then in 1914, there's this passage in his diary where he says, quote, what do I have in common with Jews? I have hardly anything in common with myself. I should stand quietly in a corner, happy that I can breathe. So here he's saying, forget exoticizing, right? Figuring out who I am as a Jew has nothing to do with identifying some point of comparison, some point of authentic comparison and reflecting it back on myself or triangulating it. Um, I have hardly anything in common with myself, right? Bringing identity back to identity um, with self. Then, in nineteen fifteen uh, he visits a Hasidic gathering in Prague with his friend Max Brod, who records this quip um, and the the um, amazingly fascinating character Yerji Langer, who, who took them there. Um, he says, quote, "Looked at precisely, it was something like a savage African tribe." End quote so there is explicit an explicitly racialized othering of Hasidic Jewish identity in terms of." African um, African tribes in terms of the quintessential basis of primitivism. You know, so three years separate these things. and throughout his literary works and his publications and, and things that were, of course published after his death, um, various elements of these come back. And this is something I also talk about in a chapter where I look at Joseph Roth and Alfred Dublin, um, Jewish writers who wrote in German, and Ansky, who was a, a Yiddish writer. Um, where primitivism and the various forms of ambivalence regarding and resistance to primitivism never actually dismantle the project. So it's not as if Kafka says, you know, I realize now that what I said about Yiddish was extremely silly and that I should just be thinking about myself and I renounce it all. That doesn't happen. And with Josef Roth and Alfred Dublin and also Anski, who... um, who undertake journeys and write travelogues about um, trips to, to the shtetls, to the shtetls to the, you know, the places where these um, presumably authentic Jews lived, um, they go and they find that, uh, you know, it turns out that um, their fantasies, the fantasies of these writers are not actualized, are not present in the lived reality of these Jews, that these Jews are not primitive savages. Uh, they're just regular people. Um, which is of course the the truth about all people who are identified as primitive savages. people are people. Um, this is a position that is not exactly compatible with primitivism. Um, and but that doesn't scuttle the project. it doesn't stop them. Dublin, Roth and Anski all at the same time as or after they have these experiences that they relate in their travelogues, they then write works of fiction that are you know uninhibitedly Primitivist. And with Kafka, it's it's a little less dramatic, but it's still all mixed up in there that Jewish primitivism has to coexist with Jewish reality. Because these are European Jews doing it on the basis of other European Jews um, who who are there, who they live with. Uh, And if they live, you know, in a different country, Alfred Dublin travels from Berlin to Poland a couple hundred miles right it's not across oceans um where you have to you know undertake treacherous journeys and it's trips that people made in both directions constantly so there's primitivism uh and there's reality and jewish primitivism is constantly uh existing within that reality not not against it uh and that produces you know sequences of paradoxes of of strange moments in these works uh, and it's one of the characteristic features of of Jewish primitivism.
0: I wonder if, I mean, it seems like what Kafka's doing is taking, he's taking this primitivist trope or discourse and kind of using it to destabilize the self, period. And so I wondered if um, there's kind of a lot, kind of moving to the, maybe some of the broader implications of your work and some of the political undertones of this book, if there is in Kafka's move, a kind of broader, um, politics or a, um, because I think in a way is not Kafka by, by comparing the Hasidic Jews to, to African tribes, you, you, it's, I'm not saying that it's not a racist move because obviously it is, but it, You unpack that and you make it a lot more complex than it seems at first, right? And then ultimately, right? And I think in a way it seems like Kafka's both a primitivist and someone who's challenging primitivism at the same time, if that's possible.
1: Well, I think what's important to recognize, especially with Kafka, excuse me, is that primitivism is ultimately um, positive. And that seems so counterintuitive uh, to us from our 21st century, you know, uh, position as as critics as scholars. Um, but that's what it was. And so, even though it's it's completely suffused with racism, um, there's also identification. Kafka is is uh, you know making this statement not exclusively, not only, maybe even not primarily as a sort of insult to Hasidic Jews, like. Oh, they're gross uh he's not saying that he's saying looked at precisely it was something like an African, a savage african tribe and this is amazing right and this is something that i've been so deeply interested in for years now uh and this is something that that moves me and captivates me right the the remainder of that sentence isn't there he didn't say that to max brod um but i draw it out from the remainder of his writings diaries letters um uh, works of fiction. He's, he's deeply fascinated by that aspect of Jewishness. So it's not, uh, and this is you know fundamental to, to Jewish primitivism, it's not um, simply an identification of this lower civilizational level as an expression of embarrassment or a desire to be free of, of all the things about Judaism that make life difficult. Um, it's an identification of that, of those aspects, as a basis for embracing Jewishness and taking those negative aspects and you know reappropriating them um, for an expression of Jewishness that goes against the Europeanizing tendencies of modernity. And so Kafka's letter to his father, you know, at the towards the beginning of it, he has this powerful few lines where he rails against his father for denying him knowledge of what it means to be Jewish taking him to, to synagogue just on the high holidays, and that's it. Right? So Kafka grows up knowing that he's Jewish, but that's it. What does it mean to be Jewish? He has no knowledge of this. And he re- deeply resents his father for that, among all the other things that he deeply resents his father for. Um, and so in that cultural milieu, identifying Hasidic Jews with quote-unquote savage Africans um, is, is not only a, a, a negative stereotype, but it has to be a negative stereotype in order to start becoming a positive stereotype as distant as possible from European modernity in order to create the basis for something salutary, something positive. Um, And, you know, that identification. And and so there is underlying that uh, a core identification um, between Jews and colonized subjects and Africans Uh, That comes out also in my discussion of the Yiddish writer Peretz in the first chapter of my book, um, where Peretz talks about, um, as he's criticizing European Jewish culture, including some modern Yiddish culture, for simply trying to be like, um, you know, I think in one of his passages, he says, oh, you're just trying to write stories like Maupassant, but in Yiddish. Um, uh, uh, Jewish culture, but in a, I forget exactly what he says, Jewish culture, but in a top hat and, and white gloves. Um, one of the images that he uses to, to express that same critique is he talks about an African school child in a European school. Yes, you know, he 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 learns all the things that European civilization has deemed as important and as critical, but at the same time, he has lost the 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 values and the content of his own culture, as Peretz expresses it. And and that creates a moment of identification because um because Peretz and Kafka see the same thing happening to European Jews that are, you know, explicitly and clearly happening in the European colonies to the colonized subjects.
0: I think that identification of the European Jew with the colonized subject is a really fascinating one. And I wondered if you you, you get at that a little bit in the book, but I wondered if you had any further thoughts about kind of the um w- whether for one, you see in anti-colonialist literature. Uh, similar threads to w- what you've discussed here in the context of, of uh, Jewish primitivism or if you you know kind of similar artistic responses you know and how this Jewish primitivist project if you could indeed label it as a project um, you know how that is perhaps a more universal rather than just a, a Jewish problem or Jewish topic or is that really so born of the particularities of the position of Jews in interwar central and Eastern Europe, that it can't really be generalized beyond?
1: Um, yes and no. How about that? Okay. I'll take that. Yeah, um, <laughs> let me, let me expand on that. Uh, it, it's a big question, and a complicated question in my book. I, I don't deal with it um, at length, in large part because um, Jewish primitivism as something done by Jews with other Jews as its object, um, you know, creates allusions to and points toward identification with colonial subjects, but it's not about them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: so I wanted to keep my focus on the, on the work that these texts uh, and these images are doing themselves. And it's usually about Jews with those sort of uh, references, identifications, affiliations in the background um that's not to say that they're not important or they're not there but it's you know it it felt to me like something that would need to be worked out after i had done the preliminary task of of you know writing this book um of there there's recent work um that illuminates uh, certain aspects of what you're asking about there's a a book by um Amelia Glazer which i had on my on my shelf right here uh, that i was looking at it's a wonderful book um, um just came out with, with Harvard University Press about um, primarily Yiddish poetry and the forms of um, identification and solidarity, political solidarity, that Yiddish poetry, particularly that of um, people under, the, under the, the sway or influence of communist internationalism, forged with, uh, with different groups. She has one chapter about the Spanish Civil War, one chapter about Scottsboro. Uh, and And very significant in for many of these yiddish writers was um was an identification with colonized subjects mm-hmm. um, and that also appears. I know there's a, a scholar currently working on a book about the subject, Eli Rosenblatt at Northwestern University who's working on uh, discourses of race in yiddish literature uh, and there was a lot of material uh, translations, adaptations of for example, African-American poetry in Yiddish. Um, wow. But much of this material was translations, adaptations. This wasn't uh, an incorporation of um, identification with these uh, minoritized or, or subjugated groups uh, into these Jewish texts that, for example, that I'm looking at, um, but seems to be a largely separate sphere Um Connected in terms of discourse, but in terms of the, the output, there, you know there's, there's an adjacency, mm-hmm. but it seems to me not an overlap. I think there's also another aspect that prevented Jewish primitivism from moving into the territory of explicit anti-colonialism that, for example, French primitivism moved into in the, the late 1920s and early 1930s, um, where it was strikingly uh, anti-colonialist. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is because in the late 1920s and early 1930s, the concerns of European Jews dramatically and rapidly changed um, with the rise of Nazism. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, the story of Jewish primitivism gets cut off in about 1939, um, not because of changing aesthetics, not because of, you know, changing dynamics in internal politics, but because of the Second World War and the Holocaust. Um, and so at the very end of my book, in the conclusion, I, I talk about that, that abrupt end to Jewish primitivism and the, the post-war afterlives, if you will, of Jewish primitivism. Um, one of the things I, I don't address, but I, I think you're quite right in, in thinking about it now, you know, I wish I had said something about it in the book, is that there's a, a sort of ghost or a shadow of that missed opportunity of an explicitly Jewish anti-colonialism. That would have grown out or matured out of the um, the Jewish primitivist resistance to the the politics of European modernity. I think that that it makes sense and it's there certainly. You know, as I mentioned, if you if you look at, at Amelia Glazer's work or Eli Rosenblatt's work, mm-hmm. you see that in the cultural landscape, in the political landscape of of Yiddish culture, for example, it's absolutely there. But in terms of doing the work in those primary texts, I think that that's a um, you know, one of the many casualties of the the tragic turn that European Jewish history took. Um,
0: Absolutely, yeah. And you make it very clear in the book that the war and the Shoah bring Jewish primitivism to an end. that yeah. There is no afterlife per se. Um, yeah, and I, I think I'm noticing that we're running out of time. So uh, you've been very generous with your time, and I don't want to take too much more of it. But if we could. Um one last question if you'll permit me um if you could just tell us a little bit about your work, what you're thinking about now what um if you have a, a new book project or sort of current uh, undertakings uh, that you'd care to share
1: i do have have a new book project um you know as as one does um the ideas i guess um keep coming in a way uh, and and one of them has has sort of turned into to a larger project um, to describe it very briefly I'm working on ideas and aesthetics of monumentality in holocaust literature how does the work of a monument usually a statue of some sort um but increasingly in the in the you know over the course of the 20th century monumentality can also happen in buildings buildings can be monuments how does that get transferred into and work through in literature um and there are sort of historical and and social reasons why this is a a necessary question why it's present as a question and that is because in the uh in the years following the holocaust um you know contrary to this uh, myth of silence which has been thoroughly debunked by now um, mm-hmm. there, there was plenty of literature written about the holocaust including in yiddish um, but opportunities for building monuments statues museums Um, were much more limited. So yes, there were uh, monuments built here and there, uh, usually on a small scale. But most Holocaust commemoration in the post-war period um, by Yiddish speakers happened uh, in literature. Uh, Whereas I think, for example, now, if you kind of survey the global landscape, including literature, including film, I think by far the most prominent um, places or venues of Holocaust commemoration are monuments and museums. And so I see uh, a trajectory, not an interruption through literature of museality and monumentality. And so I'm looking at a a body of um, Yiddish and German, as I always do texts Mm -hmm. um, that, that think through and do the work of museums and monuments and literary forms. And I'm far away from this kind of second point of my project. and, And we'll see if, if I get there, if it bears out, but looking at connections back into the flourishing of um, you know physical monumental commemoration in the let's say last quarter of the 20th century uh, a trajectory from literature back into buildings and statues um, wow, that sounds
0: fascinating and I see a similar kind of a movement across media um, kind of in in ways that make george primitivism project so exciting and you know this kind of very daring way that you're going from literature to sculpture and museum and film and then looking at the kind of intertextuality of it all um, seems really 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 promising
1: well don't tell me that it's daring because then i I might stop (laughs) doing it like the the roadrunner looking down uh down and seeing air beneath (laughs) his feet um but yeah, and you know, just to sort of conclude, um, uh, you know, talking about that project, there actually there's a connection between Jewish primitivism and between this book, and that's the museum. The Museum is something that um, is is there in the background of Jewish primitivism, because it's one of the linchpins for the creation. I you know I would argue, and many others have, of European culture more broadly, and certainly of racialized exoticized notions of european culture the ethnographic um, museum are are filtered absolutely through the ethnographic museum into the art museum and that's central and and the same thing is true in the context of of jewish museums
0: um i want to thank you sam for joining us today and for this really fascinating and wide-ranging discussion and um if you haven't yet read the book i recommend it to everyone available through stanford
1: press and uh thanks again and uh, it's been a pleasure Thank you so much Paula it was it was uh, really nice talking to you thank you for for bearing with me and thank you for for leading us through a really great conversation I enjoyed it a lot